Welcome to episode 34 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us for both his first and second appearance on the podcast is Horizon Labs member, Mr. Haywood Wong. Welcome aboard, Haywood. Hi, Blaine. What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> oh, not a lot. Uh, the reason I introduced this is Haywood's first and second. We initially recorded this back in May of 2015, so we had five months lead time. And it was only the Monday before release when I sat down to edit that I realized that recording was corrupted and we've had to do it again. So I'd just like to publicly thank Haywood for stepping up and being gracious enough to jump in and do this again on just a few hours notice so we are here to talk about avengers ultron unlimited this is avengers volume 3 issues 19 to 22 written by kurt busiek penciled by george perez inked by al vey colored by tom smith lettered by wes abbott and richard starkings edited by tom brevoort under editor-in-chief bob harris with cover dates ranging from august to november 1999 and release dates ranging from June 30th to September 29th of 1999. So that said, this is one of the, the few stories we have that really showcases Ultron. And that's appropriate considering it came out in the same year as the Avengers Age of Ultron film. And in a lot of ways is more appropriate than the actual Avengers Age of Ultron comic book in terms of connecting to that film. So we might as well get a, a little bit into the significance and plot synopsis of this. So, as we said, it is a four-issue story, and it's part of the Kurt Busiek run. So, the breaks between stories are not quite as clean as they are these days. It's very much tied in where the personal lives march on and the status quo keeps going. So, Busiek's entire 50-plus issue run is one grand sweeping epic that ended with the Kang Dynasty that Al Sedano and I have already discussed. This is a chunk almost halfway through the run, in which Ultron is back and he's rounding up members of what he considers to be his family. His father, Hank Pym, he also rounds up the Wasp, whose brain patterns were the source for Jocasta, Mockingbird, whose brain patterns were the source for Alchemina, who's involved in the story, and then there's Simon Williams, whose brain patterns for Vision, his former creation, and the brother of the Grim Reaper. He's rounded all these guys up as he's starting his new world order, because this Ultron isn't satisfied being just the one Ultron, he has finally built himself an army, and he has gone to the fictional country of Slarenia and essentially slaughtered every human being that was in there and transformed them into robotic zombies under his control, as well as creating a whole army of Ultrons, because he's tired of these humans on Earth, so he's going to play the game the human way and start taking over countries one at a time. And it's up to the Avengers to stop him. Main Avengers on the roster this time are Captain America, Iron Man, Thor... Justice and Firestar, the former New Warriors, Scarlet Witch, Vision, Wonder Man, Wasp, and Hank Pym in whatever persona he's doing at the time, whether it's Giant Man or whatnot, as well as the Black Panther. So did I miss anyone, Haywood, or is that the roster as you recall it as well? That was the roster. With Hank Pym, he was going by Giant Man with the blue and yellow costume. Yeah, he was, although some of these characters are involved more because Ultron drags them into it than because they were, you know, over at Avengers Mansion and being active members at the time. Correct, correct, correct. Well, a little side note is, Justice, he's not really totally an active member because he got his leg, uh, he got his leg broken in the previous issue. Somehow, I forgot the story, but they did explain it where 
the Black Knight was involved and somehow the blade caught his leg. So right now he's on the sideline or sitting on the bench with a cast on his leg. Yes, yeah, he is on the injured list and definitely not enjoying it. I do really like the way Bushiak handled Justice and Firestar. If you go back to the first issue of The New Warriors where they actually met, Justice is all about joining the Avengers, and in fact, that's his original plan. He was actually going to walk up to the mansion and try to show them why they should draft him, only to be brought to a complete halt by the Avengers' defensive systems. (laughs) Yeah, Justice back then, he was a total fanboy, and thinking that, oh, this is where he wants to be, but he hasn't paid the dues, uh, his dues yet. Yeah, that is definitely true, and that's something that he learns early in the course of that New Warriors run. Uh, meanwhile, Firestar never had any aspirations to join the Avengers whatsoever, and when Busiek puts them both on the team, they both kind of change their minds. This is a pivotal storyline in terms of Justice realizing that, you know, the Avengers are not these larger-than-life heroes that he thought they were. They were heroes, but they've got insecurities, they've got their foibles, and, you know, they sort of, in his view, kind of come down a couple notches and are closer to the New Warriors level that he was accustomed to. Whereas Firestar, when she was originally joining the Avengers, was dying as a side effect of her powers. And between the Avengers scientists coming up with a bodysuit to help her correct that issue, and you know not just prevent future cell damage, but actually have her powers fuel the opportunity to correct the cell damage that had already been done, but... You know, she also realizes what kind of stakes there are, and that, you know, working as an Avenger, she can make a real difference, and something that she's been wanting to do for a long time. So it kind of turns around a bit. I, that is one of the things I've, that I love about the Kurt Busiek run, is the way he handles those two characters, because I am a long-time diehard New Warriors fan. Same here, same here. I believe that's where Mark Bagley made his mark in Marvel by doing that long run with Busiek on New Warriors. Uh, with Fabian Nicieza, yeah. Oh, whoops. Yeah, it was Nicieza and Bagley for the first 25 issues, and then Derek Robertson stepped in until about issue 50, and Nicieza left shortly after 50, and then the, between the sales, the title relative to the market under the new writers, and just the way the Marvel or the comic market was going as a whole, that, that series sort of collapsed by issue tw- or by issue 75, so it lasted a little over 20 more issues after Fabian Nicieza left. Although, to the credit of the people writing and drawing it after that point, that's still more issues than most New Warriors relaunches have had since then. Correct, correct, correct. So overall, what was amazing about this was Marvel could have taken this and made it into a 9-issue or a 12-issue storyline, but it was all self-contained. It was. It was... Actually, nicely done, four issues, back-to-back. And Alcamina knew what Ultron was up to, the Avengers didn't, until basically he was ready to take over the country. So when he took over Slovenia, he didn't do it in weeks or months. He did it in minutes. So he hit it, he was ready to go, and the Avengers got drafted, essentially, by the UN to step in and take care of it with the international peacekeeping force behind them and with that manpower. And... First of all, this is part of what sets George Perez apart as an artist. Kut Bushek has said before, whatever you give to Perez is better than you could have possibly imagined. A lot of artists complain about having too many characters, because all those characters design, all that planning. The more characters you have, the more disproportionate the work is. Right? It basically takes an artist more time and effort to draw five different characters than it is to draw the same character five times, just because of the design work and things that go into it and figuring out how to put their own touch on it in a way that they're happy with. 
but Perez was constantly asking for more characters. And, you know, in particular in the scene where they're drafted into that, you know, international government facility, Busiek was picturing a giant boardroom. And Perez gave this top-down view of this multi-layer facility that just really opened it up that Busiek couldn't have been happier with. That was amazing. George Perez is one of the greatest artists we ever had. And the way you described all that is I'm not too familiar. People know about the Marvel style. I'm not too sure if it's still being used. But basically what it is is the writer writes it out like a screenplay and then lets the artist determine how the artwork is going to look. I mean, basically they're just going by cues not that much detail saying, okay, this is what happens with X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And hence, that's why if you're doing a movie and, or a TV show where you have the storyboards, that's where you have even more detail of how dark work's going to look. So these issues felt like if you're watching a movie and with the comparisons to Age of Ultron, by rereading the storyline, it did felt like Josh Whedon, he adapted the story from from these four issues and put it into the Avengers and Avengers 2. Yeah, Age of Ultron borrows much more heavily from this, even just the big final battle where you've got massive numbers of Ultron robots with every available Avenger defending them. Yeah. This is a pretty clear inspiration for that. To point that I was a little disappointed that they don't have one of my all-time favorite Thor lines of dialogue in that film. Towards the end, there's the team that Ultron has captured who eventually work their way free, and Ultron's saying, well, so what? I can still hunt you guys. This doesn't mean anything. When the wall breaks down, and there's the heavy hitters of Iron Man, and Captain America, and Thor, and these characters, and Thor is standing there in the middle saying, Ultron, we would have words with thee. Classic, classic. And you could kind of say that the way you described Thor, that's how Thor got cut out in the film also. If you're able to pick up the Blu-ray version and in the special features, they do have the extended scene of Thor and Selvig in the pool. And that gives Thor the vision of, okay, these are what the six Infinity Gems are being played. And towards the end of the movie, he would say, like, he told Tony and Steve, we're merely just pawns in a bigger game out there in space. And he has to find out what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely building. I'm looking forward to that in the next couple of phases of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, but this that's clearly part of the impact that this has had on the comics and on the industry. That has had a big impact in just influencing Age of Ultron. In the comics themselves, I haven't read every Ultron story, but thus far, this is my favorite. You get a pretty clear picture of Ultron's motives, of what it is that he is aiming for, what kinds of means he's using to get it. And it's just really well written with the characters all around. And as Haywood said, they kept it to a very tight and very full four issues. This is not the decompressed storytelling, which is a valid choice that a lot of people complain about. These days, this could have easily been a small to moderate summer event where, you know, Ultron's taken over an entire country. So instead of having UN peacekeepers under the Avengers command, they could have just had the other heroes of the Marvel Universe and made it a much more drawn out battle with a lot more characters, tie-ins, and crossovers. But that's not the way Busiek and Perez did it in 1999. It was just, no, this is what's going on. The Avengers are asked to take point. The military's going in anyway. There's no time to call in everybody else and brief them all. Let's just get at it. And 
get to Ultron before his power base grows, and he cannot be stopped. Um, interesting fact, when you said bring in the other Avengers, by going by the new Avengers titles that are coming out right now, it would have been interesting to see Perez's take on the Ultimates, which is the Black Panther team, New Avengers, which is Sunspot's science team. Then you have the Uncanny Avengers that's led by Steve Rogers. Then you have the proper one, which is going to be done by Mark Wade, where you have Sam Olsen, Jane Foster. I assume that Iron Man is Tony Stark, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, Kamala Khan, and The Vision. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've got quite a bit coming. And yeah, if you look at this, they kept this team smaller. The original story arc that Bushiak used to launch the run had a huge number of Avengers, as does his final story arc. But towards the middle, there was a rotating cast that wasn't massive, but wasn't exactly small either. If you go back to the earlier issues, it started with five team members, dropped to four, went back up to five, and then dropped back to four again. And that covered a lot of those early issues. Correct, correct, correct. In terms of the significance of continuity to this, we got some major reveals, but we don't see a lot of fallout, probably because Marvel doesn't have a lot of stories told in the country of Slorenia. I can't imagine that Slorenians would have found this a relatively minor event from continuity purposes. <laughs> but for the purposes of the story on the greater Marvel Universe, I would say that the biggest impact this had is in terms of interpreting Hank Pym's character and explaining why he's had these mental breakdowns and why he's so stressed, and bringing the creation of Ultron more in line with the creation of all of his you know, other robots that he's built in the future. You know, so when we first see Ultron, it looked like he was just built from scratch as purely artificial intelligence. And then when Ultron made the Vision, he used Simon Williams' brain patterns. When he made Jocasta, he used Janet Van Dyne's. He made Alchemina based on Mockingbirds and so forth. Well, in this one, we learn that one of the major sources of Hank Pym's stress and his insecurities and his mental instability is that when he created Ultron, he did it with his own brain patterns as the template. So when you take Hank Pym's mind and strip out conscious and emotion, what you're left with is the mind of Ultron. So this went quite a ways to helping Janet build more sympathy for Hank to keep them together, and also to just explain why Hank has had such an incredibly difficult time since well, becoming Yellowjacket, which was a few issues after the creation of Ultron in the first place. Correct, correct, correct. So is there anything else that you want to add? Anything else that you've seen as a direct follow to this story? Or? Not per se. The only thing I would say currently, the status of Hank Pym and Ultron are somewhat left dangling because I think it was last year, there was a OGN that came out called Rage of Ultron where... It was written by Rickman Mender and drawn by Jerome Pena, and it dealt with supposedly Ultron's last battle with the Avengers, and what's left after the fallout is Ultron and Hank Pym. They're merged into one being, and they're floating out in space. And the last time Ultron was floating out in space, that what caused the Annihilation storyline. Yep, Annihilation Conquest. And what was funny, this past weekend's New York Comic Con, during the Cup of Joe panel, meaning Joe Quesada's forum to talk about the new stuff and also open up for fans to speak to, there was a fan that asked, would that story be resolved? And 
the way the panel answered was, there's no plans right now, but whoever throws out the right idea, they might go run with it. Yeah, well, that's the answer to a lot of stories, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So how did you first encounter this story? When I first encountered the story, I was like, this is amazing. This felt like a very much like a Silver Age type story with a modern twist. Kirk Busiek, great writer. And of course, you have George Perez, who is undoubtedly one of the greatest artists ever to draw in a comic. And this type of team you really have in comics right now, that the books mostly came out in time. And it just left you hanging for more, saying like, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. I would say the closest uh, in terms of comics right now would be the team of Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo for Batman. Okay. I also have pretty high hopes for the upcoming Mark Wade Avengers series. Mark Wade with Mamul Ashura. Still can't say his name right, but I had a chance to pass by his booth at this past weekend's New York Comic Con, and I was a little afraid to ask him something. But maybe later down the road, maybe next year, I would have the great foods to go up and say something to him. <laughs> maybe. So did, were you buying these issues off the rack? or With this, I went to directly to a comic shop, and this was, I'm not sure if previews was it, did I order the stuff for previews? Or the shopper he had online saying, oh, this week this came out, this week this came out, this week this came out. So it wasn't really a pull list, but the shop I do go to is Midtown Comics, and they're one of the main shops in New York City. Getting back to Avengers Age of Ultron, it was really cool seeing that BC could handle two different sets of Avengers, where you have the classic core of Thor, Iron Man, and Cap, but yet the second string team of Vision, Scarlet Witch, Wonder Man, that they got the same amount of respect and screen time that the big three deserves. When he writes these, he doesn't have sort of the first string Avengers and the other Avengers. He writes them as though they're all first stringers, which I think is great. And I think that probably tired Whedon out, and hopefully the Russo brothers will handle this Avengers team moving forward with great care, hopefully, hopefully. Well, if Winter Soldier's any indication, I think we're in good hands in that respect. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, so this one is a little bit different for me. I wasn't there collecting as it came out. This was during my time off of comics. So the first time I read this was after Gitcorp released their DVD-ROMs. Oh. And at one point, once I had all the DVD-ROMs for all the heroes that were involved in the Heroes Reborn and the Heroes Return... I heard so much about the storyline, I was curious to see how it could have played out when they were off in their own universe. So I read through all of those and then just kept reading all of the those titles afterwards. So I read, you know, Fantastic Four up to the Mark Wade run, where I'd started collecting that one. I read Avengers right from Busiek straight through to Avengers Disassembled, because that's where I started collecting that one. You know, I started reading through the other titles as well, the Iron Man's, the Captain America. But that was it. So for me the First time I read this properly was actually on DVD ROM. I had tried reading the Busiek Perez Avengers run in trade paperback, but when they were first published, Marvel was trying a new trade paperback company or a new publishing company, and they were, shall we say, incredibly disappointed with them. Apparently, the worksmanship and the 
ingredients and components that went into their demo copies were not the same as the finished copies. So when the trades came into the Marvel offices for review and preview, they were all fine. But when they went out on the shelves, they were falling apart at the binding. So I got, you know, the first 12 issues or so of the Busiek run in trade paperback in a bin where they were $5 each, and I thought that was great. Took them out of these super tight bags they had, and they just started falling apart. So I read them once each, and at that point, every page had split off the binding. When you turned it, it just cracked. So I got got a chance to read them carefully once each. And from there, they just went into the recycle, because they did not hold up. So I was quite pleased to get this on the DVD-ROMs and actually read them and be able to reread them down the road as well. So basically, you got the first digital version of the storyline. Yep, that was the first time I read it was on the GitCorp DVD-ROMs. That was the first time it was published digitally, before Marvel pulled the license and shifted over to Marvel Digital Unlimited, which is one of the homes where it can be found now. One thing we should point out, as I mentioned, this does a lot to work with Hank Pym's character and with Justice's character, and a lot of that comes through in the way the story ends. As Haywood mentioned, Justice is injured, so he's back in Avengers Mansion with a broken leg, but he can't just sit there idly, so he was doing all the research he possibly can into Ultron. And this, I think, is where Vance Astrovic, a.k.a. Justice, a.k.a. Marvel Boy, really shines. It comes through when he's a new warrior, and it comes through on the Avengers. Jarvis wakes up in the middle of the night to an alarm going off, and he realizes, wait, but if the alarm's being routed here, then that means I must be the only one left of the mansion. And Marvel Boy has found something in his research, and he's checked the New York police impound lot for something. And this ties in both to Justice's character and to Kurt Busiek's just absolute mastery of continuity. So when the Avengers are fighting Ultron and Slarenia, and they're in serious trouble, Justice shows up with his broken leg and with the anti-metal vibranium that can destroy every metal it's been in contact with. Now, it hasn't been tested on adamantium yet, but if there's a shot... So he hands the samples to Hank Pym, who pulls them out of the protective casing, and, you know, Black Panther helps Iron Man get to safety. Wanda's bracelets are destroyed from her wrists. Cap's shield generator, because the shield right now is a force field, because the original shield has been destroyed. The shield generator gets wrecked. Everyone's diving for cover except Hank Pym, who wraps his fists around these rods of antimetal and just starts beating Ultron to a pulp, which is therapeutic for Pym and also really showcases the lengths Justice is going to, which is a nice counterpoint compared to the, the lengths that the previously seen Firestar was going to when she was fighting Alchemina and realized, you know what, it'll probably cost my life, but I can put her down. And that's really what she was doing until Black Panther pulled her out of the way and said, hey, we need live Avengers, not martyrs. So that's where this ends. It ends with Vance Asterix or Justice sees the Avengers come down a couple notches in his mind because he sees their doubts and their foibles. He earns more of their respect because he's the one that basically came through and saved the day for them as a result of his research. And we see you know, Hank Pym and Janet sort of start to culminate and move into a new step of their relationship when Hank Pym gets this off his chest, which should be able to help him with his therapy and keep him stable, or at least more stable from that point forward. Are there any other major implications of the story that I missed? The only thing I would say, looking at the final issue right now, I'm not too sure if it was ever resolved at the final page. Alkama picks up the ceramic disc holding the engrams from Hank Pym, Janet Van Dyne, Simon Williams, Division, Wanda Maxima, well, if you could still say Maxima, and Eric Williams, the Grim Reaper, all their engrams on these little discs, and all she says is that the next step it needs is a mother's touch. So I'm not too sure if that storyline ever got resolved. I mean, that little piece got resolved. Well, I can't think of that off the top of my head, but 
That doesn't mean it hasn't happened somewhere that's I either haven't read or aren't thinking of right now. Yeah, by thinking of those, this you could kind of say that could be the uh, grandkids of Ultron. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what they're heading for. Why don't we move into the portion of the podcast that I have so shamelessly stolen from Mission Long, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. And this is when we look for the deeper meanings or the morals or meanings or messages of this story. And all I can really see here in terms of the messages and meanings, you know, it's more about, you know, allowing others in and letting them sort of see your thought process and get to know what's going on. Because a lot of Ultron's issue is that he feels isolated and apart from the world because he is mechanical as opposed to biological. Hank Pym has got severe mental problems, we learn now, it's probably because he's been holding himself apart and aside by keeping this incredible secret. You know, if we've got any issues with the other ones, you know, Vision's had issues lately with the ways he's reacting with the team, and that's because he's been keeping secrets and keeping himself off to the side. It seems to be more of a side effect than the point of the story, but it does seem to send the message that, hey, you know, if you've got friends and family you can trust, trust them and tell them what's on your mind. Is in every single case, things were better for them when they actually revealed what they were thinking and feeling. Now, granted, Ultron walked away from the opportunity that presented itself to him afterwards, but that opportunity did arise because of what he did. So did you notice anything else in there that I missed? No, not really. You covered it greatly. <laughs> so then at this point, I think it just boils down to discussing you know, why we feel it came in at spot number 34 in this countdown. So what was it about Ultron Unlimited? that made it stand out and come out where it did? I would say why it came up so high was you had a great combination of writer and artist with the Avengers being as formidable as them. It's hard to come up with a villain that could rank up and say this is their most ultimate villain, which, as you see, they have a big list to use from, but mostly it's Loki, that's most identifiable, of course, Thanos, but with Ultron, it's more personal because you're dealing with, it feels like an actual family member. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's been there from the start. And it's, you know, we see Iron Man saying, well, you know, Ultron always feels personal to him because he's technology gone so very wrong, which is kind of Tony's bag. It's rather obvious why he feels so personal to Hank, especially with the reveals we had this time. So. Yeah, I think it is. it hit where it is, just because it's an incredibly entertaining and well-crafted story. The three elements that we look at for why things land where they do are you know, the sheer entertainment value, whether they've got messages or morals that really resonate, or whether they have major impact on continuity. And the biggest influence this had on the Avengers Age of Ultron film, that wasn't known at the time that the voting on this closed. So I don't think that influence could have been a big factor. I don't think they revealed that Hank Pym used his brain patterns to Forge Ultron would have had the impact it had if not for the storyline where he hit Jenna, which seems to be his definitive storyline. You know, the one that nobody is able to forget, nor should they, once that's part of a character's history. And I, I think this basically boils down to the fact that it is incredibly entertaining and is quite possibly the definitive Ultron story. Would you give this to someone that has never read comics before and say, okay, this is what you have seen both movies... And if you didn't feel satisfied with how Ultron was handled in the movies, this is what he should be in comics. It is representative of Ultron. I'm just not sure about all the other elements, because this, the Kurt Brusiak run in general is pretty continuity heavy. 
And while he does a nice job of footnoting and saying where you can go back to find the information and give the exposition required not to do it, there's things like the the scene we didn't really discuss with the press conference, and that's because it doesn't have a huge impact on this story arc itself, but it's really connective tissue between stories. There's things like that where I don't know if I would give someone Ultron Unlimited in isolation if they haven't read a lot of the comics. If they haven't read since the 60s, I'd have no problems handing it to them. If they are new to comics, I'd prefer to say, okay, start with Kurt Busiek's first issue and keep reading until you get to and beyond this one. At least then you're getting more of the complete story and you're seeing all the elements and how these characters have developed over time. Because that's a huge part to me of why Kurt Busiek's run works so well. It's because of the character work that he does. And he clearly had it all mapped out from the start because it just fits together so well and all the character stories are sort of paced out similarly to end around the same point. How about you? Would you give this to someone as their first exposure to Ultron? Yeah, I, w- I will, because besides all we said about Busiek is if you start reading a book done by George Perez and you don't fall in love with it, then comics shouldn't, shouldn't be your thing, because Perez gives one of the most cleanest, clearest interpretation of what heroes and villains are supposed to be yeah yeah he is a a big one in that regard that's a big part of the story is just so well executed you've got one of comics greatest writers working with one of comics greatest artists that's part of the reason i would say you know start from the first issue of their run because there's not a bad story arc in that run just give them the bc perez avengers on the bus then (laughs) pretty much yeah okay well i think that about wraps it up so heywood thanks again for joining us Thank you, Blaine, for uh, having me on. And thank you especially for agreeing to come back on and re-record on such last-minute notice. Not a problem. Not a problem. So for those who are listening along at home, you can join us again next week as another member of the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter group joins us. Mr. Jim Radloff will be the guest star as we discuss Avengers vs. X-Men, which was a 13-issue series in the end as the core of the event. We'll be discussing issues 0 through 12 rather than the tie-ins. It's been collected in trade paperback form, and it's also available on Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. In the meantime, feel free to rate this and any of the shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. And share the links with a friend of yours if you feel that they might be interested and enjoy what they're hearing. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.